If you'll grab your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 9, as you're finding your place there this morning, let me remind our parents who just sent your children or child out to Kids Church, afterwards you will pick them up in the fellowship hall. You won't pick them up in the room that you're used to picking them up. Uh, we have had such growth there. We've, ex- we've uh, exceeded the capacity of those rooms, and so now Kids Church will take place in the fellowship hall in the big room. Um, there. So make sure you keep that in mind as you go to look for your kids and you get to a room, there is no one in there. That's because they're in a different location. And we want you to take them home. (laughs) If not, we will leave some crumbs out, a little water, and hopefully they will make it till Wednesday. Kidding. Please save all the comments about that. Luke chapter 9, we're going to continue on as we have been working through the Gospel of Luke for a number of months now. And uh, just moving to the next passage. This morning, I want to speak to this subject, look at me. Uh, Look at me. That's what we're going to see in this text. Before we get there, let me kind of just set the stage. Uh, Let's use a sports analogy or sports uh, picture if we can this morning. I know some of you, when I go in the realm of sports, you just kind of fade away. like That doesn't interest me at all. Stay with me for a little bit. It's March, right? What happens in March? March Madness. Now, if your team is doing well, you love this time of season. If you're limping into the postseason like my Razorbacks are, it's, it's kind of like, well, we're going to turn it around. But we all love March Madness. Uh, we love this time of year. We, we love how conference tournaments are now going to kick off this week. Some have already been taking place, the smaller conferences. And, and so that's going to move through this week, culminate on Sunday. Selection Sunday will be next Sunday. And we'll figure out who's in the big dance, who's going to the NCAA tournament. And that way we know who is primed and ready to make a run at the final four. And so we love this time of the year. We love this season. And, and one of the reasons we love it so much is because we love not just to watch our team and hope that they can make it to the Final Four, but we love watching those players on our teams and our favorite players in college basketball. We want to see them hit those go-ahead shots. We want to see those fancy big-time dunks. We want to see the buzzer beaters that sends your team to the next round. We love also to see our players after that big-time shot, kind of strut their way down the court to play defense. Or we want to see them strutting the other way after that big-time defensive play. They made that block at the goal, and, and now they're strutting their way down as our team, your team, begins to capitalize on that moment. You know, on some level, this, this behavior is expected behavior, Right? I personally especially love and enjoy watching a team celebrate after one of those big-time plays, uh, that go-ahead shot or that dunk or that defensive uh, play at the goal. Basketball, when you think about it, it is not an individual sport. It's, we don't watch a one-on-one game. We're watching five players going against five players, and so this is a team sport. So a team has to work together for any individual to have success. So even as we love our teammate, our team, our players on the team strutting down the court after a big time play, that person didn't do it on their own. It took the other four players on the team as well. And so we're celebrating together. As a sports fan, if you've ever met one of your favorite players or players, then you know especially that it's important not just how the person plays on the court, but how the person acts off the court. There are some players that if you've ever met them, 
you quickly realize that they're just playing for themselves. They're not about the team. They, they stand aloof. They're, they're playing an individualized game. They want all the notoriety and they want none of the blame. And so they can be very disappointing when you meet a player like that, uh, someone that you look at and you respect their game and their ability, and yet you find out that they are really only about themselves. It's demonstrated in how distant they are, how much they desire to have the attention focused on them. This desire for attention while being distanced from others, that's a temptation in all facets of life. It's not just something you see in basketball or, or sports in general. It really is a temptation in all of life where we want the spotlight to be on ourselves leading to us being distant from others. Chuck Colson who served as special counsel to the President Richard Nixon back in the late 60s, early 70s, in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, related a conversation with the president about leadership to what the Bible portrays in Jesus Christ and how he was a leader. He said this, and I quote, I vividly recall a glimpse from my White House days. One brisk December night as I accompanied the president from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a moment, looking in, into the distance across the South Lawn, and he said this, that the people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? I agree. I mean, someone like De Gaulle, he continued. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's exuded by great men that people feel and, and want to follow. Now, as we hear Chuck Colson writing this, these words and, and recollecting on this experience with the present in this moment, we need to remember that this is prior to the Watergate scandal. This was prior to him through that scandal, being sent to prison and there in prison, coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is B.C. for Chuck Colson. He goes on in the book, Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. I think that's a profound statement. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his life. He says kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide, and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said, said that he himself stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting to enter our lives. Chuck Colson, I, I believe in his assessment, is correct. I believe he correctly gives us a picture of who Jesus was and is. You see, Jesus never strutted his way out of town after a miracle. You never see him taking the limelight and saying, look at me, look what I've done, look how wonderful I am. He never demanded for people to do that. In fact, we see the very opposite of that. Many times when Jesus would teach and, and perform a miracle, he would quickly retreat. He would quickly get off by himself. And we read of him praying and seeking the Father or, or taking a, a special time with his disciples to teach further about what he had just done. He was never strutting. His example shows us that true greatness is the antithesis of pride and elitism. Unfortunately, there are many people who claim the name of Christ who do not 
know this. They, they love to be praised. They love to enjoy the situation and the attention of others. Some people even attach themselves to leaders who, what Vance Haffner used to say, could strut setting down. You ever met a person who could strut setting down? They're so arrogant, so full of themselves that they didn't even have to stand up to strut. They just strutted in their seat. And yet we have the temptation to attach ourselves to them and say, man, that's what it means and that's what it looks like to be great. Anybody can strut. Anybody can call attention to themselves. Anyone can enjoy the praise and the attention of others. As we think about this and we contemplate our own lives in light of it, we need to remember that uh, all of this is part of the fall. You see, as a result of the fall, the fall of humanity, we are all totally depraved. We are all sinful and in rebellion against God. And so on some level, there's an innate desire to be the greatest and for everyone else to know it. I think we all have a little bit of the Muhammad Ali in us. I'm the greatest thing since whipped cream, sliced bread. You, you put it, whatever you want to put in there. Uh, the desire here for greatness in this recognition plagues us today, but it's interesting that as we move to this next passage of Scripture here, we see that it also plagued the disciples. It plagued the very ones who were walking with Jesus, the very ones who saw the humility of Jesus and saw his meekness and how he never stepped into the limelight, even when he deserved it, which is all the time, amen? And yet these disciples... Though they see this example in Jesus, we're plagued with the desire to be known as being great and to have the accolades and the recognition lauded upon them. As we move forward in this gospel of Luke that we've been working through, we find these disciples arguing among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine the scene here? No, I'm, I'm greater than you. Remember what I did yesterday? No, no, no. You only did that because that's the jockeying that's going back and forth. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I want us to see that the believer's attitude greatly impacts one's effectiveness with the gospel. I think what we see here is Jesus stepping into a situation where the disciples have got their focus off what is important. And the reason Jesus steps into this situation is because it's going to impact the gospel, not to mention the fact that it's not emulating the life and the heart of Jesus Christ. So look, look with me in verse 46, and let's read through verse 48. Luke says this, An argument arose among them, that's the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. According to verse 46 here, what Luke is telling us is that a debate had begun among these disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Now, as we've journeyed through the gospel of Luke, what we've witnessed is God's gracious hand reaching down to each of these men and calling them from their humble circumstances. Right? 
We've been walking through this gospel for a, quite a while, and we've seen the Lord do amazing things. And what we've seen, first of all, is that he called them from humble beginnings. None of these men were popular. None of these men held a, a prominent seat in society. No, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what was their occupation? Fishermen, blue-collar workers. Nothing special, important, uh, I mean, vital to the ongoing culture and society that they're living in, a, a pillar in the food source, a pillar in the economy, but just blue-collar people. They were just ordinary folks. Then you've got others like, take Levi, or we know him as Matthew. He wrote a gospel. He's white-collar, right? But what was his occupation? Tax collector. He's a Jewish man who's taking taxes on behalf of Rome. Therefore, every other Jew looked at him and everyone like him as a traitor to his own people. And Jesus is calling these type of men to himself. Men of no prominence, no held position in society, just humble beginnings. And all the other disciples were from very similar backgrounds. So what is it that brought these men to begin to debate among themselves as to which one was the greatest. Well, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Luke, these disciples had experienced incredible things. Remember with me some of the things that we've already seen in the Luke in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 6, we see there that after a night of prayer, what does Jesus do? He selects 12 from those who are following him, and he gives them special status. These are the men who are going to be his disciples. They're going to be the apostles. Right? These are the men who are going to carry on the ministry that Jesus is modeling for them. We see in Luke 6, 7, and 8 the, how these 12 men are now given privy to the most intimate teaching times and the most powerful displays of Jesus' authority through all these miracles. We move to Luke chapter 9 and verses 1 through 6. Jesus is going to take his power and authority, place it upon these 12 men, and send them out to heal and to cast out demons. They come back. The other gospel writers tell us and that the demons were, were obedient to them, that they were able to cast out demons. The, the, the deaf could hear. The blind could see. The, the sick were made whole. All of these things happened because God, through Jesus Christ, had placed power and authority upon these 12 men. Move on from that in chapter 9, and we see that these men also are going to come back from these miracles and they're going to experience Jesus doing an incredible miracle as he takes just a few fish and a couple loaves and he's going to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. 15,000 plus people are going to be fed from one simple boy's lunch. A couple sardines, a few crackers. Maybe a box juice. Right? Got to have a box juice in there. And they're going to be able to pick these baskets up. And they're like just amazed. I mean, they're, they're, they're seen to be with Jesus. And so this is part of what they're getting to experience. And, and things they're getting to participate in. That's followed by Peter, James, and John being invited up with Jesus to spend a night on the mountain. And there on the mountainside, these men who have fallen asleep wake up. And they see Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah. And so they get to see just a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They get to catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And they get to experience that. I mean, the, the ones that they had heard about and read about and revered in the Jewish faith, they're laying eyes on, right? They know this is Moses and they know this is Elijah. They come down off the mountainside talking theology and just excited about all these things. They get to the bottom and what we saw last week is they 
come up on the other nine disciples and they learned that these men weren't able to cast a demon out of a young boy. Jesus cast the demon out and, and all of those things happened. On the back end of this, they begin to debate which one is the greatest. All of these events, all of these experiences played a role in the demonstration of pride that's on display in the verses that we're looking at this morning. You know, we might understand this pride as the quality of having an excessively high opinion of oneself or one's importance. That's how we would define pride, right? We know what pride is. We can recognize it very quickly. You can see it in someone else's life. You can see it in in what they say. You can see it in how they live. You can see it in what they do. We know what pride is, and we know how to mark it. And yet they couldn't see it in their own lives. Muhammad Ali used to say of himself, I am the greatest. I am a bad man. And that's what the disciples are doing right here. I'm the greatest. Look at me. You see, on the way to Capernaum, the disciples were were saying, look at me, I'm the greatest. Pride is beginning to swell up in their hearts without their knowledge. And if it's left unchecked, this attitude will greatly impact their effectiveness with the gospel. It's interesting as we think about pride, it's interesting that we can see it in others, but we fail to see it in ourselves. I got to believe that Peter, James, and John and the other men would have recognized pride in other people's lives and they would have called it out. But here they are talking about how great they are and they have no concept that it's pride in their own lives. It's pride welling up in their own hearts and the way they view themselves. Thankfully, Jesus here recognizes it, and he points it out in their lives. And so from this confrontation this morning, I want to share with us three truths. I want to highlight these for us this morning. Here's the first thing I want us to see. Comparison is natural and worldly. Comparison is natural and worldly. Every one of us make hundreds, probably, of of comparisons each And every day, definitely multiple comparisons each and every day we're making. And for the most part, these comparisons are probably not bad. So I want you to hear me on the front end is when we talk about comparisons here, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I think it's good that automobile makers, manufacturers compare their product to the products that are on the market alongside theirs, right? Aren't you glad that when you go and buy a new car that that is being compared to the other models from the other brands in that certain class of uh, vehicle so that they're competing against one another? So what happens on the back end of that, comp- that, uh, that comparison, that competition, is a more efficient vehicle, it's a safer vehicle, and it's a whole lot more fun vehicle, right? Can you imagine if we're still driving around Model T's? Or even what was before that, you get out there in the morning and and you're cranking that thing. Can you imagine if we're still driving that today? No, we get to drive modern, efficient, totally electric vehicles, if you will. I mean, just the -the state-of-the-art things. And I'm a gas guy, by the way, if you're just wondering. I I still like to hear the roar of an engine. I know I'd get some of you on that one. Uh, But if you drive electric, God bless you. Thank you for that. I think they're cool. I, when it pulls up next to me, I'm thinking, is that a spaceship? I don't know what this is. I'm used to an exhaust. But comparison is a good thing. It's an exciting thing. It, it gives us a new product to enjoy. 
It's also good for students and athletes and employees to know where they stand among their peers. And see, in many ways, growth and development stem from a comparison to one's competition. When I was in high school a long time ago, I wanted to go out with a bang knowing there's probably no college athletic future for me. And so that spring year, I actually took track serious. Rather than using it to keep myself in shape for football and the other things that I played, I put my heart and soul into it. So in January of that year, as we were going through the early uh, uh, training for that, I began to run and to train with my rival at another school, the other sprinter that squared off against me in most track events. He and I began to train with one another in the indoor track season. And that was a great benefit to me because I knew how good my competition was and it prepared me to be ready for the outdoor track season. And so comparison and understanding your competition is a good thing in this natural world. When everyone achieves the same status and receives the same awards, what does that do to growth? I believe it stifles it. If we're all going to get the same thing, it lessens the quality of the end product. And so comparison's a good thing. Cars, in education, in the workplace, we need to have some comparison. The problem with this natural comparison, however, is that it can often lead one person or people to find identity and worth in the performance and the ranking. And so our identity, if we're not careful, can be tied to how we place or what we look like or how someone views us. The disciples here were not satisfied with the grace that had been given to them. They were not satisfied with being on Jesus' team. Instead, they sought value in how and what they performed for Jesus. That's why they wanted to be known as the greatest. Well, I'm better than you. I got invited to this, and you didn't get invited to that, right? I'm part of the inner circle. Apparently, Peter, James, and John, we're the three amigos. We got to go up on the mountainside. Now, I don't know if Peter and James and John were leading this, this debate, but they were part of the debate. And so we just got to put our, our, our imagination into this scene because we know human nature. We've been there ourselves, and this is what's taking place. They're simply not satisfied with being on the team of Jesus they wanted to be known for how they performed for Jesus. And so they wanted to be known as the, the best person on Jesus' team. And so they're jockeying for position so that everyone else knows that they're number one. That they're sitting in the first seat, not the second seat, and definitely not the 12th seat. So they're putting one another down. Today, as followers of Christ, we need to recognize this. See, these followers of Christ, these men were not called to live by natural and worldly standards in their walk with Jesus. They had experienced God's good grace. Jesus had sought them out despite their humble circumstances. It's not like Jesus was going around saying, golly, you, you, you've got it all, you've got it just going on. You, everybody's flocking to you. I want you to be on my team. No, he's coming to these men who use foul language and says, come follow me. Men who had nothing to offer him, no money to give him, nothing to make him look better or feel better or have more prominence. And Jesus invites them to join him. You see, their last name, their occupation, their education, their financial resources, and their social status added nothing to their worth in the eyes of Jesus Christ. But instead, they had been created in the image and likeness of God, and they had been called out to redemption in Jesus Christ, and that was and is enough. Amen? Luke tells us that these 
disciples argued among themselves as to who was the greatest. He tells us more than that. He tells us that Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. You see, this reasoning is the natural and worldly demonstration of pride that is pervasive in our human hearts. It's that, that, that aspect of the fall. It's the depravity within the human heart. It's the desire to make a name for oneself. It's this yearning of the heart that says, look at me. I'm the greatest. Look at me. Take stock of me. Make much of me. That's what we in our fallenness want the world to say about us. You say, well, no, that's just for the extroverts. No, it's for the introvert as well. Everybody is wicked to the core. We all want people to take notice of it. Even the person that is squirming when they are in the spotlight loves being in the spotlight in some sort of twisted way. We want to be accoladed. We want people to know our names. While competition is good for growth and development, I want you to know this morning, it's destructive within human relationships. It makes a very poor God because value can never be found in what a person does. You see, value can only be found in the God for whom you were created. That's where we find our value. That's where we find our sense of worth. That's where we find our identity. And so this morning, comparison is natural and it's worldly, and we need to recognize it as such. There's a second truth that I want to highlight. It's this. Greatness is found in service and humility. Greatness is found in service and humility. Luke tells us that Jesus here, knowing the disciples' hearts, did something strange. He calls a child to himself. Now, we read this, and we're, I think many times we're reading back in the story. We know that Jesus loves children. We know Luke 18 where he says, don't prevent the children from coming to me. And so we don't catch this, how awkward of a situation this was in this setting. But Jesus is doing something here very profound. While his, while his disciples are arguing about who's great, Jesus says, hey, young man, come here. And he takes a young boy, and he, I just imagine Jesus, maybe he's sitting down, maybe he's standing, and he just brings him in close, arm is around the young boy, and he begins to talk to the disciples. And the young man here is on full display as the object lesson. Look at what Jesus says in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, that is the Father. For he who is least among you is the one who is the greatest. Now, what do we know about children in this culture? Here's what we know. Children were loved and children were cherished within their families in the Hebrew culture. They were not, however, highly valued outside of the home. In fact, one, one rabbi writing in the Talmud said this, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble destroy men. In other words, keeping company with children adds nothing to a man. You want to up your status, you want to grow, you want to develop, you want to become mature, you want to become better in what you do, you want to have more prominence, don't hang out with kids. Hang out with great men. This was the mindset. We know that because Luke 18, the disciples themselves had this mindset. This was a Jewish mindset concerning children. And so the disciples, like their culture, believed that greatness was derived from the company that one keeps. 
so the great associate with the great and deal with matters of great significance. But children are not great and they are not significant. Therefore, it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine Peter, James, and John making their case before the other disciples because what have they just experienced? Man, they got to stand with the greatest of the great when it comes to the hall of faith. Moses and Elijah. Wow. Moses, the giver of the law. Uh, Elijah, the great prophet who stood up on Mount Carmel and called fire down from heaven and burned up that sacrifice and killed 800 prophets of Baal and Asherah. He stood for the glory of God and the word of God. I mean, he's revered in the Jewish history. And they got to spend some time with him. Look at me. Look at us. We're the three amigos. We're the great ones. And so the object lesson Jesus is presenting here to these men offered two opposing figures. First was Jesus himself. Jesus is everything to his disciples, right? Jesus is going to be crucified and he's going to be buried in that grave. Their world shatters. Jesus is everything to these disciples. They're following him. That's what it means to be a disciple. The second object lesson, the second person in this object lesson was a child who was nothing to them. Remember how they think of children. And then Jesus issues this challenge to receive the child just as they would receive him. His point was to show that greatness and value were not found in what one does or who one knows. It's not about the child that gives anything to them outside of the fact that the child is representing Jesus. You see... Greatness is found in service to the least among society. It is found as one puts others above themselves. It's a humbling thing. If you want to be great, then you will only find it as you model your life after the life of Jesus. And what did Jesus say of himself? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. That's what he says in Mark 10, 45. That the Son of Man came not to be served, he came to serve. And the the disciples here are jockeying for position. They're arguing over which one of them would be served by the others, which one of them would take the seat of prominence. It's almost like they wanted to be the high priest in the Jewish culture so that they could have all of the accolades. This morning, we need to remember and understand that our worth is not found in what we do. It's found only in Jesus as our creator and our redeemer. It's never going to be found in occupation. It's never going to be found in how much money we have or what kind of house we live in or what toys we have or where we vacation or the friends that we keep. Our value, our worth, our status is not found in any of those things. Those leave us empty and wanting something more. But when we will serve others and humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing that we're not doing that to earn anything, but we're doing that because we have received that same service and humble example from Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be great. Leads us to a third truth. The message is greater than the messenger. The Lord uses a child here in this object lesson to drive the truth home. Again, I don't want you to miss the fact that children in the Jewish culture didn't hold high status. And yet Jesus says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. You see, God's purpose for these disciples was not for them to make a great name for themselves. His goal for them 
was not to be famous. His goal for them was not to have the invitations to preach at all the big conferences in, in, in Galilee and, and the other places in Palestine. No, Jesus' goal for these men was for them to make Jesus famous as they humbly served the people through their preaching of the gospel. It wasn't about them. It was about him. It wasn't about what they said. It was about the message that they are conveying. You see this morning that the message is greater than the messenger. Even if the gospel message comes through the witness of a little child, what is the Lord offering himself? It's not about who you heard it from. Some of you might have heard the gospel and believed on Jesus because you happen to be setting under the teaching or the preaching of a prominent religious person, right? Some of you, I don't know, I can't remember all of your testimonies. Maybe you heard the gospel through Billy Graham. You're at a crusade or something. And, and so you heard the gospel from Billy Graham of all people and were drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. What a great testimony that is. Is that any different than you hearing the gospel from your small group leader when you were in seventh grade? And as a woman today, you, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're walking in maturity because of that, because of this simple, humble, uh, no-name woman when you were in seventh grade, loved you enough to tell you about Jesus Christ, and you believed on Jesus in faith, and he radically changed your life, and has continued to change your life. Is your worth any different because you heard the gospel from a nobody versus the person who heard the gospel from somebody like Billy Graham? No. It matters nothing about where you heard the gospel or who you heard the gospel from. It only matters that you heard the gospel and responded in faith. Amen? Amen. So we don't chase preachers. We don't chase teachers. We don't chase prominent people because they're prominent. If we do that, do we not sound a whole lot like the church at Corinth? Is that not what Paul was writing among many things that they had wrong? That they were saying, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of so-and-so. He says, none of that matters. I'm of Jesus Christ. I don't care who you heard the gospel from. I don't care who you baptized or who you were baptized by. I care that you're in Christ and that's enough. So the main thing is not the giver of the message, but the God of the message. For that reason this morning, there should be no famous preachers that we are falling over. There should be only a famous Savior. Now let's take it a step further. There should be no famous churches today, but only a famous Savior. Now, we have famous churches today. I'm being careful. I'm not being mean at all. Many times our churches that are famous is because they produce great music and have great music ministry. Sometimes they have a great preaching ministry. But let's not get caught up in the name and the accolades there. What's the message? That's the most important thing. What's the message? If it's the message of the gospel, I don't care if it's a church running 20,000 or a church running 20. It's about the gospel and not about the one who preaches it. Amen? Jesus is the constant. As I read this this morning, as I was preparing this past week, I just feel like it's timely. It's amazing how the Lord is never off time. He's never early. He's never late. But as I read this passage, study this passage, as we're looking at it this morning, could there be a better passage for us today at Red Lane Baptist Church than this one right here? 
Here's what's happening in the life of Richard Schumer. If you're brand new, today's your first day you walked in. You have no idea what I'm about to say. Well, the rest of you don't either. (laughs) God is being really, really good to us as a local church. We are on a wave of his favor. I mean, you look around the room, we have very few seats that are empty. And there's a lot of you that weren't here last Sunday. We had the highest attendance on a non-holiday Sunday that we've had in years last Sunday. We baptized nine people last week, right? That's amazing. We had 12 people that we voted into membership. There are others that we still have yet to vote them into membership. Those are coming. God's doing some great things here. And so I say that not to toot our horns to say, look how wonderful we are. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, look how great God is, and look how favorable he is to us as a church. But here's where we want to learn. Here's where we want to take this and and heed the warning, because we don't want to say, look what we're doing, and begin to compare ourselves to other churches in our area. We don't ever want to do that. We don't ever want to get ahead of the Lord and say, man, we're awesome. We're the stuff, right? And other people need to figure out what we're doing. They need to emulate what we're doing. No, we just need to continue to look at Jesus and follow Jesus and believe his word and share his gospel and live that out in our lives where we live and work and play and let God take care of everything else. We don't know what's coming next. I mean, we're talking, our elders, our staff, we're trying to figure out how do we handle the growth that we have? What's it going to look like? We're trying to project down the line months, weeks, months, years. Like, how do we get to where we need to be to handle what the Lord may continue to give us? But if the Lord's will is to pull that back, it's his church. Amen? And I'm still going to stand here, and I'm going to preach the same message that we've been preaching from the very beginning. And you're still going to serve the same God, and we're going to sing the same songs. We're going to continue to do things faithfully unto the Lord, because it's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in and through his church. So I think this is a timely message for us. It reminds us that we need to keep our eyes fixed upon him, because we're powerless to do anything. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. May we never strive to manufacture anything for the Lord, but simply allow him to do what he wants to do in us and through us. May we be humbled enough to remember that the Lord doesn't need us and he doesn't need this church. That ought to be a sobering thought. This church is, what, we're in our 178th year, I believe? It's quite a history. It's quite a heritage. It's been a lot of mountaintop experiences, some valleys in that, and everything in between. And one constant has been God's faithfulness to us. I've got to believe there's been times when this church has been very faithful to the Lord and not so faithful on the other end. God has always been faithful. But he doesn't need Red Lane Baptist Church. I was thinking about this this morning as I do on every Sunday morning. Read back through the sermon, pray through it, do all the things that I I do. And I started thinking about where we're at as a county. 31,000 people or so. If you go back to the early 80s, 84, 85, somewhere in that neighborhood, 88 maybe. The county was 8,000 people. We've seen three times the growth, four times the growth. Where is it going to continue to be? We only have a fraction of the churches we need to handle the population we currently have. 
And so I look at that and I say, man, the Lord's, he, he's got to have Red Lane Baptist. I mean, if this county's ever going to be reached with the gospel again, it's going to be because of Red Lane and, and other churches like us. But then I, I say that statement this morning as I'm meditating over all this and I'm wondering, does the Lord really need us? And the answer to that question is no, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need any of us. He could command a donkey out in the field and walk in and preach the gospel to a bunch of people. He doesn't need you and I. He chooses to use us. And so we want to position ourselves in humble surrendership to his lordship and his goodness, walking in his grace, keeping in mind all of the things and the, the good things that he's done for us. And we just want to live that gospel out before others in humility and service, knowing that the message is primary and we are replaceable. But praise God, he chooses to use us. And so this morning, rather than ever getting caught, in, caught up in how great and wonderful we are, let's remember that we're only here by God's grace. And let's remember that it's only through the grace of God that others who need to know Jesus can be drawn to him in faith. And so let's humbly serve those people. Let's live the gospel out in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, at the ball fields. Let's remember the gospel message is what is great. It's not us. But thank the Lord he's given us the privilege to share it where we live, where we work, and where we play. And so may our attitude be gospel-centered, not me-centered. Not look how wonderful we are. Not look what, how wonderful I am. No, let's say, look, let's, let's look at how wonderful God is. How good he is to us as a people. How good he is to us as a community. If we're going to strut, let's strut for Jesus. Let's point our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our classmates to Jesus. My prayer is that our attitude the attitude of our hearts and the refrain of our lips is never look at me, but it's always look at Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are so grateful for your goodness and your grace. I'm overwhelmed, not just when I walk in on Sundays and see so many just excited people here. Regular attenders, long-time members, first-time guests, those are good, and I enjoy that every Sunday. But, Father, here's what I really rejoice in. <laughs> Conversations that I have with our folks throughout the week, and it's evident that you're doing a deep work in their hearts, that they're becoming more sanctified in their walk with Jesus. That their affinity with sinful and worldly things is diminishing and their love and affection for holy things and righteous things and the Lord Jesus himself is increasing. That's what excites me. I'm thrilled when we get to see families be transformed and restored. I'm thrilled when we see people seeing their sinfulness and their separation from God and believing on Jesus in faith. That's what excites me. And God, that's what excites us as a church. We just testified this morning that that, is, that has nothing to do with us. It's simply the grace of God and the goodness of God. And so help us to walk in humility. And if we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, may we continue to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. And may we see how woefully inadequate we are. And continue to be drawn to him.
And so, Spirit, this morning, in this time of response, if there's an ounce of pride, I pray that we would confess it. And that we would walk in humility. Help us, Lord Jesus, as a local church to never pat ourselves on the back, but Lord, may we continue to just bask in the glory and the goodness of God while reaching a hand out to sister churches in this area and saying, let's lock arms together. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's work in the gospel together because one church can never reach this county. You've never meant, it, meant for it to be so. So God, continue to do a work in us and through us. And Lord, may it spread to our sister churches in this area. Father, I pray that even this spring on Easter Sunday, that church houses across this county would be packed in multiple services because of the overwhelming movement of your spirit amongst the people of our county. I pray this morning might be a stirring of that as we as your people just begin to pray to that end. Asking, begging, seeking your face that you might do that. This morning in this room, for those who are not in relationship with Jesus, I'm thankful for those words he says, those who would receive this child receive me. Lord, this morning there are some people in this room who need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They need to confess their sin, turn from it, and turn to a Savior who stands with welcoming, open arms to receive them. Father, that song we sang earlier, that we come broken to be mended, that we come empty to be filled. This morning, there's some broken and empty people in this room, and you stand ready to welcome them with open arms, to heal that brokenness, and to feel that heart with your loving presence. Do that this morning as we respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.